Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. This is Podcaster and Commander an audio documentary podcast series about the seafaring classic Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. The series will be an oral history of the film's conception and production, a discussion of the film's critical reception, and the increasing resonance in the now 20 years since its release. Dr. Stephen Maturin takes Captain Jack Aubrey on a tour of his wounded. Lord Blakeney the third most important character of the film, is stoic in his depleted state. Maturin knows that Jack has a relationship with the boy's father. Jack's eyes don't lie. His concern is palpable. The pallor and sweat pouring from Blakeney bespeaks further attention needed. We know what a sailor Jack is. We're about to learn what a surgeon Maturin is. This exchange is everything about their relationship. Jack is acknowledging the prowess of his foe, the artistry of his warcraft, all the while having a bullet-sized shard of wood picked from his throat. When Matron replies that he has no idea what the heck Jack is talking about, he gives the audience permission not to care about the vernacular, the acronyms. We'll intuit what we need to. What's more interesting here is hearing Jack ponder how his enemy got his exact location. He would never speak with the broader crew about this. He doesn't want to reveal his deeper feelings on the subject complicate naval warfare, the entanglements of espionage. It's right here that Maturin shoots a confident and incisive glance. It's one that speaks volumes. But there's a lot more to this doctor than meets the eye. So who are the sailors who are going to help me pinpoint the position of the release of Master and Commander and understand how its enemies set upon her? 
co-writer of Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, John Colley. You've just got to let the dream speak to you and, uh, and, uh, and not try and deconstruct it, because otherwise you might destroy the magic. Author and TV producer, Lee Zachariah. Everything is played to a modern eye. Whenever you have a character in the past who speculates about the future or who is a pioneer in something that the audience is familiar with, there is always a knowing link. Even in many mature works, flaws me that we are resistant to this. Even, even hinting at this, it is so, it is so sincere. Film critic, video essayist, filmmaker, and author, Scout Tafoya. Peter Weir directs in calligraphy. Pop culture writer at The Digital Fix, and features writer for Slash Film, Fiona Underhill. But it's also pre-film, gearing up to the age of Marvel movies, franchise, sequels, just dominating the time. Co-host of the B-Side podcast, post-production wrangler and writer at the film stage, Connor O'Donnell. Is that your little car? Film critic, writer, and author of the cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, and the host of One Heat Minute Productions' own Pod Thomas Anderson and the upcoming great Henson caper, the singular and singularly talented Ethan Warren. It's a compelling cocktail of moods and tones and one that never loses its freshness. Filmmaker, producer, and one half of the incredible team behind the Tony and Ridley Scott The End of History video essay series, Tucker Johnson. Master and Commander came out shortly after that. We saw it in the theater just like Scott did, which was like a mind-blowing experience. (laughs) The premier movie newsman on the internet, founding editor of Dark Horizons, my dear friend, Garth Franklin. One day, the characters of Aubrey and Maturin could sail the seas again. And finally, senior editor and critic at Rolling Stone, and the former editor of Time Out New York, David Fear. Really just going because I was like, it's Peter Weir. I'll see anything that Peter Weir does. I had been a longtime Peter Weir fan since, you know, seeing Gallipoli as a young formative lad uh, with my parents. Uh, also in a theater, because I'm that old. Your narrator for the series is me, Ken Jacob. Theme doctor, Andrew Villa, and I am your captain, Blake Howard. Episode four. She's a fine seabird. She's not old. She's in her prime. Let's get started with co-writer of Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, John Colley, who talks about his experience of seeing the film finally assembled and his experience of the reception firsthand. It was early in my career and I didn't actually get involved in any of the post-production at all. Um, I, and so really, I think the first time I saw it was at the premiere in London when it sort of uh, was finally when it was all together. I mean, Peter, yeah, went off and did his protest in the edit room and was surrounded by his own people in that. And I didn't really, at the time, I didn't know the business very well at all, didn't really expect to be kind of involved in, in the post-production. I I now get involved much more in, in, in post and really enjoy it. And it is a really creative um, time in the life of a movie because you can change so much in the edits we just by giving extra weight to this line or that line or even changing lines on the on the ADR on the on the post recording but with that particular film no I kind of uh, I was intensely involved in the in the writing process and then basically um, saw it two years later and uh, 
and of course, yeah, I thought it was marvelous. And uh, and we had a wonderful uh, screening and a party at Leicester Square in London. And uh, yeah, and the rest is history. But um, it was um, uh, it was really only sort of seeing it uh, when it was all completed that uh, that that was my first kind of exposure to. Funny thing about that film is that a lot of the cast were were relatively unknown. I mean, uh, Paul Bettany obviously had a profile and Russell had a profile, but Peter went out of his way to cast the film um, with people who didn't necessarily look like uh, uh, matinee idols. Certainly for the for the for the crew, the below decks um, sort of uh, crew. He went to uh, Central Europe and Poland looking for. Faces that didn't look modern, you know, and uh, and that's one of the things that gives the film a great, a great authenticity. So of the of the cast, yeah, Paul Bettany subsequently became a great pal, and we've done a couple of other projects together. But um, uh, yeah, that was um, it was basically just sort of meeting all the uh, meeting all the kind of. Um, uh, crew who'd been in, in Mexico catching up with them again, we realized that it was uh, um, a crowd pleaser. Although, you know, it's, a, it's I think Martian Commander is one of these films that is a bit of a slow burn, you know. I mean, not all films that become classics are classics at the time. I remember Princess Bride was just uh, a, a, a sort of a, a massive kind of popular favorite. was kind of came and went, um, at the time, and and the truth is that you know, at the Oscars with uh, with Martin Commander, we were sort of up against uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So obviously, <laughs> uh, that was a that was a tough one. And and at the box office, we were up against Pirates of the Caribbean, which none of us thought sounded like it was going to do very well, but was actually the first Pirates was a genius. Uh, piece of filmmaking. Pirates of the Caribbean definitely won that one at the box office, and and that's part of the reason why there was never a sequel that the uh, Pirates was just doing so well and uh, that's basically still uh, a lot of the thunder. To help us navigate the critical reception of Master and Commander, Ethan Warren, the deck is yours. Among film critics, praise for Master and Commander, the far side of the world was virtually unanimous. Of the 55 writers listed as top critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 51 rated the film fresh. Roger Ebert, an avowed fan of Patrick O'Brien's novels, wrote that, quote, Peter Weir's Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, is an exuberant sea adventure told with uncommon intelligence. We are reminded of well-crafted classics before the soulless age of computerized action. Master and Commander is grand and glorious and touching in its attention to its characters. Like the work of David Lean, it achieves the epic without losing sight of the human, and to see it is to be reminded of the way great action movies can rouse and exhilarate us can affirm life instead of simply dramatizing its destruction, end quote. At Salon, Stephanie Zacharek wrote, quote, Master and Commander is a gentleman's action movie, one in which the delicate psychology of human notions like bravery, honor, and duty thrive amid, and not in spite of, the crashing boom of cannonballs as they splinter wood, the clang and thunk of swords as a tangle of men fight to the death, the roar of the sea as it threatens to swallow the bunch of them whole. Master and Commander is exciting without being unnecessarily loud and vital without being garish. Weir has used every tool available to him to make a movie that feels not just authentically of its period, 
but somehow suspended in time, end quote. On the more measured end of the spectrum, Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle said, quote, Master and Commander, the far side of the world, has epic scale and atmosphere, plus a first-rate director in Peter Weir. The film contains brilliantly crafted scenes and shots that are as compelling as anything seen on screen this year, but there are also dull stretches in which the movie seems lightweight, never in its execution, but in its conception, end quote. As for the pans, Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post warned viewers that, quote, a good rule of thumb is avoid movies with colons in the title. A colon connotes equal weight for both halves of the entity surrounding it. In other words, someone, namely the author, hasn't been able to make up his mind which half is more important. He hasn't discriminated, and that, after all, is his job. Thus, the thing feels weirdly overstuffed as stories keep stumbling into and over one another or are buried beneath the arrival of other stories. In the end, Master and Commander the Far Side of the World seems fated to disappoint everyone except the slick magazines that put it on their covers. The cognizanti who have memorized the O'Brien novels will pull out their hair at the liberties taken. The plots and incidents mesh together haphazardly. The Aubrey Innocent, who don't know the difference between a top gallant and a preventer backstay, will just wonder what the fuss is about. End quote. According to Jeremiah Kipp of Slant, meanwhile, quote, Master and Commander is never bold or romantic, too mired down in hoary seriousness. It's unfortunately dull, the kiss of death for a movie that's supposed to squash and buckle, end quote. The majority of critics, though, were in alignment with The Hollywood Reporter, which wrote that, quote, Master and Commander may be set entirely at sea, but Weir has never been more grounded as a filmmaker, end quote. Here analyzing the box office reception of Master and Commander, is Garth Franklin, followed by Fiona Underhill, hypothesizing about Hollywood in this key transition phase. Peter Weir's Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, opened on November 14th, 2003 in the United States. The film opened directly opposite Looney Tunes Back in Action and followed in the wake of sci-fi trilogy closer The Matrix Revolutions and the Will Ferrell-led holiday comedy Elf. As such, it entered a crowded marketplace with the film debuting in second place behind Elf. That film saw a truly remarkable drop of only 15% in its second weekend box office, and it still managed to take the top spot with $26 million, just edging out Master and Commander, which debuted in second with $25 million. It was an unforgiving marketplace. The Matrix Revolutions had plummeted in its second weekend, Disney was still smarting from its animated flop Brother Bear, and that Looney Tunes film had debuted to only 9 million in fifth place. These were tough times, and it was reflected in subsequent weeks, as Master and Commander dropped to fourth place in its second weekend, sixth place in its third weekend, and by the end of its theatrical run had scored $93.9 million domestically, $118 million overseas, and a worldwide total of $212 million. To put that in perspective, in the US alone in that calendar year, the film made only a few thousand dollars more than Freddy vs. Jason. These days, the film currently sits at number 835 on the all-time worldwide box office list. It's there among some great company, with comparable numbers to films like Pulp Fiction, District 9, and The Help. Yet one thing greatly differs those films from Master and Commander, and that is, those films boast considerably smaller budgets. A movie generally has to make 2.5 to 3 times its production budget in order to break even. The extra figures covering marketing and publicity costs, along with the cut that exhibitors take at the cinema. Weir's film came in at a costly $150 million production budget, meaning the movie would have had to have earned almost double what it did to be considered truly profitable. The obvious hope 
had been to repeat the success of Ridley Scott's Gladiator three years earlier, which had managed $458 million worldwide. Some of pegged Master and Commander's failure as being due to a waning interest in historical epics. But that likely wasn't the case here, as Ed Zwick's well-received The Last Samurai opened a mere three weeks later and went on to earn $456 million globally. More likely was that a realistic, gritty, historical epic was a tough sell in a marketplace dominated that year by more fantastical tales. Also impacting was the massive $654 million success of Gore Verbinski's pirate fantasy epic, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, which had opened in July. There was another nautical-themed film, but it was also a major crowd-pleaser, with flashier visuals, a career-defining central performance, and a more family-friendly audience appeal. Master and Commander instead tried for the prestige factor. Reviews were excellent, but weren't quite hailing it the masterpiece it is often labelled these days. Similarly, audiences were a bit cold on the film. Long-time exit poll service CinemaScore found attendees of the movie gave it an average grade of B+, which suggests it slightly missed expectations. Opening in mid-November meant the film was also trying for awards glory. On that front, it had some solid success, with a rather large list of 10 Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director. It won two for cinematography and sound editing. Unfortunately, it faced a tough lineup that year, with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings The Return of the King sweeping many of the major categories. These days, Master and Commander's most enduring legacy seems to be as the textbook case of a franchise that should have been but simply didn't make enough at the box office to justify any further entries. Critical reappraisal in the years since has only seen the perception of the film go up, to the point that maybe, one day, the characters of Aubrey and Maturin could sail the seas again. I think it's really interesting to look at Master and Commander in the context of the year it was released and thinking about... Um, you know, what was going on in terms of Hollywood and movies at that time. I think it's a really interesting um, transition period for Hollywood because it had already passed into the time when movies for adults and the mid-budget mid movie was starting to sort of wane in terms of popularity. It was also pre-Marvel, so... Although there were um, sort of comic book movies and sequels sort of dominating the, the box office at the time, um, it was in the pre-Marvel era. So there was the likes of um, Too Fast, Too Furious, X-Men 2, um, Bad Boys 2, Terminator 3, um, The Matrix sequels. One of the most um, direct comparisons for Master and Commander that we, you could look at is um, Caribbean. Master and Commander's budget was 150 million, and comparing that that even to Pirates of the Caribbean, the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie was a um, its budget was 140 million. So you know, Master and Commander was even more expensive than Pirates of the Caribbean. We'll be back after this quick break. Here's Lee Zachariah, Connor O'Donnell, Scout Tafoya, Tucker Johnson and David Fear joining in a chorus of remembrance, remembering the impact of this movie as it came out and its enduring impacts. This film 
should not work. I remember, I remember back in 2003, it's, it's kind of hard to remember how you felt about something at the time and not how you come to think about it. But I remember at the time, and this kind of feels like blasphemy, but no one really wanted to see this film. This was not a film that got people excited. Like, of course, cinephiles are going to go and see the Peter Weir film. There wasn't a lot of excitement around it. And there was good word of mouth that built over time. It was kind of around in the last, the waning years of where word of mouth could affect the film's fortunes. But this was a film that it, it just, it came out at the wrong time. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very wary of, of using the phrase post 9-11 because uh, I think it's used so often as wallpaper to, to take a, a broad meaning and, and paper over very complex issues. Um, but it was, it was post 9-11. It was, we were in the middle of wars and for whatever reason, uh, whether it was that international uh, mood or whether it was simply the advent of CGI, audiences wanted fantasy. Like the biggest box office hits of the previous year, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Spider-Man, Star Wars, Men in Black, James Bond. Like that was what people wanted to see. And I think something like a Napoleonic series with no fantastical elements coming out so soon after something like Sharp, the Sean Bean series on the BBC, there's something about that that felt low rent at a time when big budget meant fantasy, when spectacle, which is what you go to the movies for, was becoming intertwined with the supernatural. And so something like Master and Commander felt like it was from an older era in more ways than one. And like the film didn't do badly at the box office, but it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't of the moment where, and I think that actually kind of makes it magical. It feels, it feels timeless now, which, you know, looking at it all these years later, it feels more special for that, for that time, for that fact. So for me, I remember seeing this movie, uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, 2003. So it had been out for uh, almost two weeks at that point. And I remember going with my family and kind of making a meal out of it because a bunch of my siblings were in from out of town for, uh, for the holiday weekend. And for my dad, uh, I, granted, I feel like this film is probably like the apex or platonic ideal of a, uh, like a quote unquote dad movie. So for my dad, it was no different. Um, he didn't always vibe with movies in theaters, but Russ was one of his guys so he was like juiced for this one. And I think we all like those of us that went out that night, I think we like fed off of that, you know, like you could kind of feel even just when you see the old hands with hold fast, just gripping tight, like you, it really did kind of feel like we were like, Ooh, okay. Like we, we knew we were in for something and I was a teenager then. And I was just really only getting into movies like, and how they were made, you know, around that time. Uh, you know, like reading Hollywood Reporter and Entertainment Weekly and stuff like that. And I really ate it up. Um, I loved it. So the movie's tepid reaction at the time kind of skipped me. I don't know. I, I, I didn't really function to it too much. It was just another super cool, fun movie that I saw in 2003. But critically, it was kind of, you know, sort of a mixed to positive situation. But 
financially, I mean, the movie cost $135 million and made, you know, a little more than one and a half times that. I think it was, it landed at like just under two, 213. So if you're Fox, you know, like maybe you're not sunk, but you probably are wishing you could do better. And I think when calculating all this, it's important to like put those numbers against the landscape, right? Like in 2003, just box office wise over the course of the year, you've got X2, X-Men United, the first Pirates of the Caribbean, the first two Matrix sequels and Return of the King. Right. And roughly two weeks after Master and Commander, The Last Samurai opens and probably starts to eat a little bit of its lunch too, demographically speaking, which obviously means ticket sales too. And now that movie made more than Master and Commander. It was like a little bit more of a hit. It only cost, I think, like five million more dollars than Master and Commander and made somewhere in the 400s. But it was also received with a kind of like meh critical response, probably even less of a positive response than Master and Commander. Um, So in the face of all those burgeoning and ongoing blockbuster IPs, not only do these movies, Master Commander and The Last Samurai, kind of signal the decline of the period battle epic. Um, and it's a decline that something like Troy might later solidify the following year. But Master and Commander in particular, in falling to a team of superheroes, Disney characters, elves, etc., could really be considered one of the first real casualties in the never-ending IP war at the box office that we're currently mired in today. Um, and I suppose, you know, you could say it's because it's based on something much more niche. That's probably true. Um, but it, it really, I think for that reason to audiences just couldn't stand up to the likes of a, you know, a theme park ride, uh, with undead pirates or something like that in 2003, which is a real shame because it, there really hasn't been a kind of, salty sweaty seafaring epic quite quite like it that hasn't had you know cgc monsters and johnny depp in it going to see master and commander was a big deal for me because much like a lot of the things that my dad loved it was mm. the first chance for us to see something that peter weir had done in theaters my dad was a huge fan of last wave and picnic yes. at hanging rock uh, and and Gallipoli, he really loved these movies. And so when Master and Commander came out, because I was a little young for Truman Show, um, but we saw that on VHS and and you know appreciated that. But even that was still kind of as good as that movie is. It's it's kind of Hollywood Peter Weir. It's not really like unfiltered Peter Weir. Master and Commander, despite having to meet the demands of a novel, a very complex novel, a complex series of novels, as we know, it, it borrows from this, that, or the other. Um, that was kind of my window into it. it. It allowed me to go back into his things, so that when Criterion started picking up his work, I could go back and see these things and sort of build this picture of him altogether. And it was just, I mean much like keeping track of the works of Ridley and Tony Scott, as, as, as your listeners maybe hopefully know at this point, Tucker and I are, are, our pride and joy is our 10 part video essay series, the end of history about Ridley and Tony. And, and, and one of the things that we keep coming back to building, you know, that was, that was the thing is that going back at the, the, the development of the popular American cinema and seeing the way that an artist who developed his style 
away from America, away from our influence, away from our movies, except, of course, for the things that filtered over there, most notably, probably in both of their cases, would have been Stanley Kubrick, you know, or, or our science fiction or something like that, and building this really distinct body of work in the reflection of that while, while you know, paying respectful and reasonable homage to them while also building your own sort of path to follow. And, and, and just what a joy it is. And to see the two of them developing side by side was, was just such a, a gift in essence to see people sort of fighting the same battles and coming up with works of art that really do speak for themselves. And in such wonder, I mean, it's like calligraphy, Peter, yeah. Peter Weir directs in calligraphy and, <laughs> It was just, you know, just just what a joy to to take in that entire body of work, even movies that people sort of tell you are not very good, and movies, frankly, that like I don't need to watch again, like Dead Poets or or Green Card. They're just they're just pretty. They're just pretty. They they have such a beautiful internal clock to them, and and he's just so good with actors and and everything. So yeah, that's that's my own my own weird journey. Growing up with a stepdad who was really into, like, period warfare films like the moment i met him he was like oh have you ever seen last of the mohicans and i was like no you know being an 11 year old boy and so that was like the first bonding moment and then master and commander came out shortly after that we saw it in the theater just like scout did um which was like a mind-blowing experience yeah um but i i think it was a combination of the, the bonding element for me, but then watching Seeing Master and Commander and then weirdly at the same time, Gallipoli was on like HBO. So mm. I, we just kind of like watched it. Like one day it was just on and we watched it. And it was the same kind of thing where we're watching these war period piece films that managed to kind of like take the stars. And granted, Mel Gibson was very young in his career when Gallipoli came out. But it kind of just looked like, oh, this is a guy that's making movies with very famous people and not letting them be very famous. And it was a really nice element of the movie for me, because even as an 11, 12 year old boy, I already was appreciating the idea that they were kind of like tucking the celebrity into the story and not just like, you know, we were just talking about Harrison Ford, kind of the perfect example, like a guy who clearly wants to have the world forget that he's Han Solo and Indiana Jones for a minute so that he can just be in a movie. <laughs> but I think, I think the thing that attracted me very quickly to his work was like the, the functionality of what he was presenting on screen. We, we watched master and commander a couple of days ago just to kind of be, have it fresh. And it was like, the first thing we noticed was he spends all this time on extremely functional coverage. Yes. Like everything he starts the movie with is creating the world for you. And it, but it's in the same way. It's like, Oh, you see faces that you recognize and you see actors, you know, from other things. And it's just so not important to him. It's he's telling you a story. Well, that's, I mean, you know, unlike a lot of directors, even in this period, and frankly, we take for granted how much more artfully the, inception of a picture used to be it used to be presented i should say um when when going through this so it's funny we you know uh, tucker made a joke about this when we first started the movie that when you're seeing the boys coming down from the rigging it looks like a musical it's like yeah. a musical number is about to begin and that is just how i mean a how rhythmically perfect so much of this movie is but also just how focused it is where you see them coming down every part of the ship 
you see exactly as often as you need to to understand the function of it. Yeah. So during the first battle, exactly the pumping and the the saving of the silver during the raid and the the surgeon with this line of people coming out there and then they see them performing the surgery in the open air because that's the better lighting, which is of course a metaphor for filmmaking. It's <laughs> and that's exactly it is that Weir was not a director even. This movie is not that old, and it feels new every time you watch it, right? This doesn't feel like an old movie. It feels it feels classical, certainly. It's one of the great pieces of 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 classicism that come out of Hollywood. That's I talked to uh, Ben Sachs, who used to write for and occasionally still writes for the Chicago Reader. We talk about the last bit of new Hollywood classicism or post classical classicism, yeah. and Coppola's Youth Without Youth. Uh, a couple of late Altmans fit the bill, and this is certainly one of them, and the only reason that we can't attribute that. I mean, you know, every shot is, on the one hand, telling you a piece of the story that you need to know to get from A to B, and on the other hand, is as perfectly lit and considered and timed as it needs to be to ensure that the movie continues to... Exactly. (laughs) There's no B-roll. Despite the functionality of a lot of the cutaways, everything continues the thing going exactly as it needs to go. And we have essentially lost that economy of storytelling in Hollywood. That is gone now. People have decided that a take lasts long because the longer it goes on, that's the more important it is. And... They have absolutely forgotten about, you know, I mean, this movie is an object lesson in a handful of things, not the least of which is adaptation. You know, we've talked about the fact that Master and Commander pulls from a number of different Patrick O'Brien books because it takes the things that Weir knew would tell the story best and look best on camera. And it's just stupendous. I mean, like, this is... The, the editing that he had to do and his writers had to do and his edit you know his editors had to do to make sure that you're getting the most compact version of this that nevertheless is expansive as it needs to be to tell the entire arc of their dealings with the Acheron. That is not something that we have anymore. Nobody thinks about this. And if they do think about this, then they're getting an eight series deal on Hulu. Yes. And it's just not as fun and it's not as exciting because there is a challenge aspect to it, which is how do I how do I make a movie? How do I make a movie that people want to see? And despite the fact that this didn't make all of its money back, people did want to see this because they did come out in droves. Maybe not to the degree that they went to go see, for instance, Triple X with Vin Diesel. I think Master and Commander is nothing if not an obsessive movie. I think Master and Commander is. Um, I mean, that's kind. Of, I think that's partially. I think that's partially why fans of the books of Patrick O'Brien's books are so. Um, so enamored of the film is because it, it captures the same obsession or the same obsessiveness, I guess, that uh, O'Brien brings to talking about that period of history and that sort of subgenre of war stories and how he's he seems really kind of into the idea of putting you not just in that era, but on those ships and in that ship culture. I mean, rewatching Master and Commander, I was so struck by how the film's not really about the battles. I mean, I think the battles are done beautifully, you know, especially that last one where they've got to kind of fake them out and and come on in. And, or even the first, the first scene is so great because they're prepared, you know, they're seeing something in the fog. They're not sure what it is. They're thinking that it might be an enemy ship. Um, And so they start to prepare. And what Weir does is he gives us that great montage of, pageantry and chaos yes side by side so that you're seeing people running around manning their stations getting everything ready in case they have to like go into attack mode and then it's intercut with shots of people like buckling belts 
and putting on coats and this entire notion of actually sort of dressing for war while you're actually preparing to to go into what is going to be you know just chaotic combat um and and that to me you suddenly are sort of like oh this is this is the culture of the ship and then you know i'm not the first person to say this but some of the most interesting passages in master and commander are between the battles where you're really just kind of getting to know these characters and trying to figure out the hierarchy of how these things work and how you know the ship has to run with a certain kind of authoritarian zeal i guess and yet yes. still still enough improvisational things that like <laughs> it, it, it and everything's not super strict there's definitely you know honor and discipline on that ship and yet when when things need to kind of go when they need to zig instead of zag like russell crowe's lucky jack aubrey will like <laughs> let them basically you know zag away it's just um between those two categories where you have this film with this incredible epic scope that was nominated for a shit ton of awards i think it only won for sound design and cinematography if i remember correctly but was you know he was nominated for best it was up for best picture um was put together by you know was put together and distributed by not one not two but three major studios yeah you know fox universal and miramax and um and yet did modest business um was kind of forgotten for many years by a lot of folks people had really sort of moved on and yet you could not find a bigger cult behind that film no. i mean even if you took this podcast that we're recording right now <laughs> out of the mix you know there are still the people that love master and commander love that movie so much they love it to death they really think it is kind of the end all be all not just of like naval battle films or historical epics you know done in the 21st century um but just just of peter weir movies of this is kind of like this is the film he had been leading up to making and the question then becomes i guess whether this film is the same film that broke him or not once upon a time at rolling stone we would we did a series called revisiting hours which is where it was a was a once a week column where we would look at stuff that was streaming and i would have a writer you know write an essay about it and the idea had to be that it it couldn't be more than 50 years old um just because we kind of you know we didn't want to dive too much into the golden age of stuff i felt like that was a different column um and it had to be something that was streaming so people could actually watch it and it had to be something that needed to be revisited Yes. I mean, I can sit and you know, I've seen The Godfather 3000 times like I don't know if that's the actual number but it could be close. <laughs> and so and yet nobody needs to revisit The Godfather, you just rewatch it all the time. Yeah, and yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's in the it's in the rotation. Thank you. And so um Scott Tobias, who's a writer that I love dearly, had pitched Master and Commander as being one. He wrote this great piece about um about this alternate history in which Master and Commander becomes a huge success and nobody <laughs> goes to see the Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> and how that changes. I like changes. the way Scott thinks. I like the way Scott thinks. I like the way Scott thinks too, but it also <laughs> he makes a good case for it before he actually starts getting into like um giving Master and Commander its proper due. He does this beautiful notion of like how this changes the trajectory of, you know, studio filmmaking and Hollywood filmmaking for a couple of decades. Yes. The idea being that suddenly 
suddenly these lucrative franchises based off of intellectual property don't quite they don't quite hit as soon as they do or maybe they don't view this as a test case and so we get another five ten years of movies like gladiator or like um master and commander yes uh and it's a really great if you you know if anybody gets a chance to you, you can google the piece it's really wonderful it's a it's a lovely piece of writing but speaking of alternate histories i think what you've just done is is reframed the conversation beautifully because i asked was this the film that perhaps broke Peter Weir as a filmmaker? And what you've reframed it as, maybe this was the film that liberated Peter Weir yes. from being a filmmaker. The idea being that, like, chasing that muse just gives you, like, blisters on your feet and yes. wears you down and ages you prematurely. And, it you know, it stops being a I can't go on, I must go on thing. And that thinking, okay, these are the films I want to make, and if there's no audience for this anymore, or if there's no, if the thing just becomes doing it itself, and that, in fact, is the reward, and the reward no longer feels sustainable or like mana to me, um, I'm just going to stop doing it. I've had my time in the sun, and I'm going to kind of go gracefully. Now, as a huge fan of The Way Back, like I'm glad he didn't do that. Yes. But it's an interesting way to look at that as being sort of like, okay, I like, this is the best I can do. And I'm, you know, I no longer feel the need to do it anymore. Podcaster and Commander is produced by Blake Howard on the far side of the world Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.